This message was presented at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Sabbath, a day where we can come and break open the Word of God, the spirit of prophecy, and have a discussion on vital truths that are very important to this church, this movement. We just want to pray in a special way that your Holy Spirit would uh, immerse uh, our hearts and our, and our minds of those of us who will be sharing today, and also be with the hearts and minds of those who are listening. And we just pray that ultimately your spirit of love and your wisdom will be present this afternoon. And we thank you, Lord. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, let's go ahead and start and cut to the chase. I'm going to go ahead and introduce our panelists. I really don't need to do that, so I'm going to do it very briefly. Adam Ramden, uh, on the far left there, is Youth Ministries Director for the North England Conference, also Director of Peace, uh, Center of Evangelism in England. Chester uh, Clark is a pastor in Dalton, Georgia. Uh, also has served as ASI Vice President, uh, also as Executive Committee of the GC. He's certainly no stranger to GYC. He's been a board member since the very inception of GYC. We also have uh, Siku Dako, uh, one of the directors of campus and a speaker uh, of G at GYC and no stranger to GYC. And of course, last but not least, Ty Gibson, uh, co-director of Light Bearers and pastor of Storyline Adventist Church. You've probably seen him on 3ABN as well. Whoops, I needed to have gone down there. And so I just want to go ahead and start off by stating this, that please no uh, comments or remarks from the audience. This is being recorded. We want to ask that you be respectful and uh, courteous um, as we uh, have our dialogue up here together. I also want to say that the statements and discussion points of the panelists uh, do not reflect the views of GYC, so there's a disclaimer here, in any official uh, capacity. So with that said, uh, the final generation, also known as last generation theology, uh, it's been a, a heated controversy or subject of heated controversy uh, over 50 years. Uh, theologians, pastors, and popular speakers and local churches have debated this uh, over those years. And really, this subject matter is too big for us to conquer in a one-hour setting. And we're really going to be hitting many of the highlights. I want to also share, introduce uh, the subject with uh, several quotes from theologians and church leaders to get the discussion going and get the framework uh, uh, on the go. So this is in an article in 2007 from, from Woodrow Whitten. Um, we have two identifiable theological traditions or paradigms of moderately conservative present truth Adventism. These two traditions have developed two essentially distinctive versions of soteriology, which has to do with the study of salvation, Christology, i.e. the nature of Christ, and eschatology, or the study of end time events within the Seventh-day Adventist Church. 
Angel Rodriguez, the former director of the Biblical Research Institute in 013, stated, and I quote, and he's summarizing the issue. So, uh, quote, the theology of the last generation was developed and popularized in the Adventist church by M.L. Andreessen. Andreessen was building on insights from A.T. Jones and E.J. Wagner. This theology introduced a strong element of legalism in some sectors of the church by claiming that the character of God maligned by Satan in the cosmic conflict will be vindicated through the holy and perfect life of obedience of the last generation of believers. This generation will reach a level of character uh, development unequaled in Christian history, copying perfectly in their lives what God did in Christ. Once this happens, the Lord will return. This theology seeks to explain why the Lord has not returned and the nature and purpose of Christian perfection. It is based primarily on a particular reading of the writings of Ellen G. White. I want to point your attention to several items. GYC is no stranger to the notion of the final generation. In, two, in 014, uh, Eugene Pruitt, uh, a friend of mine, uh, spoke on it. In 012, Ty Gibson spoke on it. Uh, also, Professor Nick Miller spoke on it in 012. Some GYC supporters are prominent leaders of the last generation theology movement defending GYC and LGT on message boards of various publications of the church. The converse, I would like to add, is also true that many who do not adhere to last generation theology also attend and support GYC. So this is the perception. And I'm going to quote an article in Spectrum um, uh, entitled Viewpoint Before Men and Angels. And um, I'll go ahead and read it now. One of my interests, the author states, in coming to this meeting was to witness firsthand reports that GYC advocates last generation theology and perfectionism. This should have been apparent not only from the conference's theme, but from the name of some of the speakers in years past. And I want to be fair, this is my own words here, many speakers who do not adhere to LGT are also invited speakers of GYC. The article goes on to say that GYC subscribes to LGT should have been clear to anyone who watched the promo video for the Orlando conference. The senior pastor of a large Adventist congregation was outraged by the video the idea that God needs to be vindicated by us is pure blasphemy. Moving forward, I think it is rather unfortunate, he concludes, that our young people are getting a heaping dose of perfectionism at GYC conferences, which will later come to haunt them spiritually and emotionally as it did me in my younger years. No easy questions this afternoon. Chester, 
What is your reaction, first of all, to some of the statements made there? An argument can certainly be made that GYC is supportive of last generation theology. It's assumed by many that LGT is the official, at the very least unofficial, position of GYC. Does GYC have an official formal position regarding LGT and any formal ties and relationship with its main proponents? And by the way, I'm glad I'm not being asked that question. <laughs> yes, um, those questions would be the proper way. Yeah, it's, uh, I think, you know, they, first of all, just to, just to say this, um, I hope that when we're finished here, you have a clear understanding of what at least us on the panel believe, not just what we don't believe, okay? And uh, I think that you, you, saw the, uh, you saw the list of speakers that have addressed this topic in the past. Um, I myself, I think it was the third GYC, the chart on Sunday morning, I had, it was called the 10 characteristics of the final generation. And um, we, we covered the final generation. A number of us have, have spoken widely on the topic of um, what God is wanting to do in the last days. And uh, so one thing is very clear. We all believe that, uh, that Jesus is coming soon, which means there's going to be a final generation, right? We all believe that. Uh, we believe that uh, God is going to do a special work in the last days. We know the, we, we know the characteristics of 144,000 and so forth. Um, but what GYC does not adhere to or try to do GYC does not try to define theologies or theological positions that are not broadly understood and accepted by the Seventh-day Church. If you read in our mission statement, uh, number 10, actually, of our spirit of GYC, uh, we seek to cultivate an attitude of humility and cordiality as we seek to clarify, articulate, and defend the biblical teachings of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And uh, so this is what this is where we have historically uh, stayed as a GYC organization. We believe that GYC was not called into into um, existence in this earth, this part of Earth's history, for the purpose of being a theological think tank. We believe that uh, we, we don't believe that GYC is here to try to uh, you know. Uh, take the place of the BRI, or in some way, you know, be able to spell out the, the, the specific tenets of truth that the church has been remiss on. Our belief, our understanding of what GYC has called us to, is to equip and mobilize young people to take the biblical Seventh-day Adventist message to the world. So, I'm uncomfortable, I'm speaking a little bit personally right now, but I'm personally uncomfortable with the undertaking of creating a new theology. Okay, that's just me. Uh, there, there may be, I think even if I could agree with every portion of what, whatever the, the last generation theology teaches, I would not advocate defining it as a new theology. If it's Adventism, it's Adventism, let's teach it. If it's not, then we'll, let's not teach it, right? Um, but I also want to say this. Um, when I hear, when I read those statements, mm -hmm. um, I, 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 do not, I do not believe that GYC stands for what they are characterizing us to stand for. Okay, let me say it this way. I do not believe 
that uh, we are attempting to create a generation of young people who, uh, who, who as, as, um, as it was said there, um, perfectly have all the character of God as it was manifested in Christ. I also don't believe that we are going to, or it is our responsibility to focus on vindicating the character of God. I do believe that God's character is going to be vindicated through the last generation. But it's God who's going to do that, not us. See, there's a, there's, it's more than just a semantic difference there. Mm -hmm. When we start focusing on ourselves and our own perfection, we start elevating our role above where it should be in the great controversy. And I found, you know, when I was a, when I was a young person, the, there, were, there, were, there were certain litmus, test, litmus tests in conservative Adventism. Um, and one of the things that was going around was this idea, do you believe in victory over sin? Now, um, I praise God that God has the power to change human hearts and lives. Amen? Amen. I tell my church members, if your religion does nothing more for you than you can do for yourself, it's not true religion. Mm -hmm. We need a miracle of divine grace to transform our lives. And that is what God wants to do for us. But I want to tell you something. I remember as a young person, so much focus on victory over sin that I focused more on the sin than I did, than I did on Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. and, and sometimes we can, we can get the wrong uh, focus um, and it actually, it actually deters the outcome that we were, um, we were hoping to, to, to have. So, I'm very uncomfortable with the way those authors portrayed our positions. Um, I'm also very, very uncomfortable with some of the um, maybe positions that they are coming from as they critique what they see as our positions. And I think in your next slide, mm -hmm. I you have a statement from Desire Babies, is that right? No, it's not. It's coming up. It's coming up yes. Does anyone, any other, any of the other panelists want to chime in? Um, one statement that's made there is the, the the notion that humans can vindicate God's character is is equated to to blasphemy to blasphemy, and I just want to throw that out there. Does anyone want to talk about that or 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 um, uh, mention anything to that effect? I'll take a stab at it. What, what's happening in that language, that the idea of vindicating the character of God is pure blasphemy, is, is what we as Seventh-day Adventists in general would regard as at least a soft form of Calvinism. And what I mean by that, if you could just pull up a sheet of paper in your imagination, draw a line down the middle, and in the left column, Calvinism. Calvinism held adjacent to, in contrast to, Arminianism. As Seventh-day Adventists, we are of a theological branch of thinking and processing that is Arminian, not Calvinist. Now, on the sheet of paper, in your imagination, just move down in order to achieve a level of clarity. Calvinism is a form of determinism. God predetermines everything that's going to happen in human history, including who's going to be saved and who's going to be lost. By contrast, Arminianism is free will theism rather than deterministic theism. It believes in the dynamic of free will. Go down the columns further. 
Calvinism hails from a Greek philosophy orientation, whereas Arminianism, free will theism, hails from a Hebrew way of processing. And what I mean by that is simply this, that in Calvinism, reality is static, it doesn't move, God has predetermined everything that's going to happen, this is where you get the notion of fate, and destiny, and ideas like that, everything that happens has a reason, God is in control in some kind of micromanaging sense, versus on the theological line that we as Seventh-day Adventists come from, we don't believe that reality is static and micromanaged and controlled in that sense. We believe that reality is dynamic and relational. And in that sense, we believe that God's character is primarily actuated by love, which gives freedom, which has risk. A human being can actually impact God's reality. Hence, in Seventh-day Adventist thinking, watch this, we believe, if we follow our theological lineage through to its conclusion, we believe that it is possible for human beings to either hasten or delay the second coming. Because human beings impact divine reality. Because God is not exercising a micromanaging control over all affairs, and everything is not predetermined. On the other side, in the column, the left column, what's happening over here, giving rise to that kind of statement, is that it's blasphemy that human beings could contribute anything to the exoneration, vindication, glorification, couldn't contribute anything to God's reality because God is transcending anything that human beings might do to impact either him or the flow of history. We as Seventh-day Adventists are not Calvinists. We're Arminians, we're free will theists. We believe in the love-freedom-risk equation of reality. As a result, we believe as Seventh-day Adventists that human beings, what we do as a church and as individuals can make God happy or sad, can cause God to feel things, can actually bring on or push the eschatological buttons that bring on the second coming, or say no to Jesus and delay the thing. So vindication, which I think we're gonna talk about in greater detail later, vindication is not a concept in Seventh-day Adventist theology that has to do with salvation. It has to do with mission. Seventh-day Adventists do not believe that the final generation will be saved by any other means, any different means than people have been saved in past history. Salvation is by grace, through faith, alone in Christ, period, end of subject. But then we understand in this line that because salvation is by grace, through faith, alone in Christ, the fact is that human beings intersect with that grace and impact God and human history through the way they live, which in fact can and does impact God's reality. So that's that's the shortest, you, you asked yeah, it, I'm no, sorry. No, that, and I, okay. I do appreciate that. I wouldn't call yeah. that short, but I yeah. think that's it was necessary. Yes, it, it, okay. it was shorter than, yeah. than, than and I do appreciate it. Wasn't that helpful? <laughs> Wasn't that helpful? So let's let's take a look at the theolo theology. 
So a few of the considerations, not all the claims made by the pro-LGT, uh, by the way, this is not uh, the LGBT, it's the last generation theology <laughs> proponents, right? Not all the claims made by the pro-LGT pro proponents are debated. Uh, we, we've assumed that here. Uh, many points, I could tell you a story about that, but anyway, many, there are many broad uh, points of consensus. Uh, today we're going to focus on the points of most interest within the church. Now, Ty, uh, we're going back to you, and not all the questions, of course, are directed towards you, but you've spoken in the past on the final generation. Uh, uh, many on this panel have preached, as, as Chester has mentioned, and as we've seen, but I'm sure not everyone believes, uh, in, believes it the same way. Right? There are differences. Can you characterize what some of those differences might be? And where, in your opinion, do some veer off? What may be some of the pitfalls? Well, I, I mentioned that, that it's a missiological concept, not a salvational concept. So that would be where we need to exercise a great deal of care that when we talk about the final generation that we don't either overtly preach or even leave the emotional impression on people that their salvation is now dependent on achieving a level of perfection that previous generations have not achieved. So that would be one nuance that, that I think is vital to make. But in the, in the larger sense, for example, to use an illustration to make this um, simple, Andy, you have a face. You have ears. You are not your ears. You have a nose. You are not your nose. You have eyebrows. You are not your eyebrows. There's the composite. If I were to take a close-up picture of your eyebrow, filling the whole frame with your eyebrow, and send it to my wife and say, this is my friend Andy, it would be true and it would be false, but it would be mostly false. So the composite matters. The picture matters. Heresy is often born of emphasizing one aspect or dimension of truth to the exclusion or minimizing of another. So, for example, when we read that our prophet has said to us, and this is, this is probably in the category of the most emphatic statement she ever made about anything. She's never used this language about anything except for this. She says, and I quote, there is not a point that needs to be dwelt upon more earnestly repeated more frequently or established more firmly in the minds of all than the impossibility of fallen man meriting anything by his own best good works. Salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ alone, end of quote. So, so with that emphasis, with that solid core, if we understand that salvation is by grace through faith alone in Christ, and, and then we build our composite around that solid reality that is uncompromised in our thinking. Then we're going to communicate in such a way that whatever, whatever it is we're saying about the final generation produces what Ellen White calls rest in his love rather than anxiety as to whether or not we shall be saved. I'm quoting now from Steps to Christ, page 71. Ellen White says that if the final impact of a theology on me, on the congregation to whom I'm preaching, if the final impact is to produce, quote unquote, anxiety as to whether or not I'm going to make it, 
That's false theology. That is not the gospel. She says, on the other hand, that the true gospel produces a sense of rest in his love. Sabbath keeping, basically. Seventh-day Adventists are Sabbath keepers, not just because they keep the right day, but because they have rest in Christ for salvation. So the, the, the composite, the picture, you're not your eyebrow. We need to build a picture mm -hmm. that leaves people in the right place spiritually and emotionally and doesn't leave them in the wrong place where they either move toward a kind of uh, you know, self-righteous Phariseeism or, on the other hand, just get discouraged and give up in despair. Yeah. There's something else besides despair or self-righteousness. And it's security in Christ that bears fruit to his glory. Right. Amen. So let's go ahead and move forward. The proposition. So LGT teaches that God is waiting for his people to attain perfectly sinless lives. Um, some would uh, very, uh, have a very nuanced way of looking at it in terms of this ultimate quality and quantity, which will ultimately vindicate the character of God. Now, once this perfection and vindication are achieved, that will be the impetus for Jesus to return. I want to read a, the statement that's most often used in Christ Object Lessons, page 69. When the fruit is brought forth, Immediately he putteth in the sickle because the harvest is come. Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. It is the privilege of every Christian not only to look for, but to hasten the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Were all who profess his name bearing fruit to his glory, how quickly the whole world would be sown with the seed of the gospel. Quickly the last great harvest would be ripened, and Christ would come to gather the precious grain. Now Adam, the vindicating, with that, that, that quote in mind, uh, the most popular quote that is used uh, in this discussion, the vindicating of God's character and law depending upon the remnant living perfectly sinless lives at the end of time. Are you feeling that? And is this central to Adventism? Everybody look at Adam. You. <laughs> Do you want me to read the question again? Or? I'm reading the word again. If I could reword it, I would ask the question, is God's character going to be vindicated? And to that I would answer, yes. I believe it is. Which then draws, obviously, the next logical question, or one of many, how will it be vindicated? Now, before I answer that, what I'll say is this. I think in this, in this debate, there's obviously clear theological differences in the spectrum of Adventism. And there are some semantics as well. I'm not one that believes it's all initial semantics. There's clear theological differences. But what I'm about to say, I think we have to be very careful about the wording that we use. Is God's character going to be vindicated? Yes. How? There's a difference, and I'm using my words carefully, between me vindicating God or God vindicating himself in me. 
there's a big difference between that. Now, maybe to like, sometimes to someone looking from the outside in, it's all just a, it's all one and the same. And I think that's why we have to be careful about the language that we use, because it impacts how we live and how we read the Bible and how we, you know, live as a Christian. It's not about me vindicating God, but me surrendering to Him and allowing His work to be done in my life. And there's a big difference between the two, in thinking and then in practice. So I guess that's how I answer. That's a pretty good answer. It is. That's a very good answer, and I, I like that. And I want to, and I know some others may want to chime in. I want to add the second component to this question. Uh, and it's directed at Chester. Is it necessary that God's people attain a level of perfection not seen in previous generations in order for Jesus to return? So that's the. So we can kind of now just kind of discuss these concepts and and, and move forward with that. So let's go ahead and start with you, Chester. Sure. Well, I'll take a cue from Adam. Um, if I can rephrase that question, I would phrase it. Um, <laughs> will God's people attain a level of perfection. Um, when, you, when you say, is it necessary, once again, just like Adam said it so, so beautifully, uh, when you say, is, is it necessary, it, it really puts this onus on us. It puts this onus on us to be the ones that, that, that vindicate God's character, the ones that attain a level of perfection. It, it, and what that does is it, it puts a, it can be very discouraging, because this is what happens, at least I think it's what happens. The closer we come to Christ, the more imperfections we see in our character. I, the way I read the spirit of prophecy, it seems to me that even those who are going through the time of Jacob's trouble are really doubting that they are going to be able to be saved. And if you have this idea that I need to reach a point where I'm perfect, I need to do this so that Jesus can come, and it's my responsibility. I'm afraid some of us, at least, might, might either fall in the trap of perfectionism, starting to think, well, I've arrived, uh, which is a clear sign that we haven't. Or we may simply become discouraged because we see that we, we still fall short in so many ways. Now, I believe, I do believe, that God is going to do exactly what he says he will do. The Bible says that there's going to be 144,000. You read about them in Revelation chapter 14. You follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Amen. The Father's name written in their forehead. That's His character. I believe that no guile is going to be found in their mouths. And, and I, my Bible tells me that if you, if you control the tongue, you can control your whole person. And uh, that's pretty much perfect. A perfect man, right? Um, I believe that that, that, that God is going to have a group of people prepared by the three angels' messages, uh, which is, by the way, the, the mission of Adventism, prepare people to be ready, right? I believe God is going to have a group of people who he points to and says, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. I believe all those things. But I believe it's God that's going to do it. And it's going, he's going to do it as we focus not on our imperfections and our sins, but as we focus on him, as we keep him in, in our eyes. And I think the next 
Well, um, and I it may have not put the right quote at the right place, and uh, that's that's my fault. It is coming, and um, and you'll have to wait for that. That's going to be the anticipation that we're all looking for. I, the, now, this quote here, I don't know if this is the one. Obedience or disobedience, this is speaking of the end of time, is a question to be decided by the whole world. All will be called to choose between the law of God and the laws of men. Here, the dividing line will be drawn. There will be but two classes. Every character will be fully developed. And all will show whether they have chosen the side of loyalty or that of rebellion. Then... The end will come. God will vindicate his law and deliver his people. Mm -hmm. You notice the emphasis on God, and that's the same thing as uh, Adam was sharing. God is the one who, through his people, will vindicate his law and his character. That is, it, it may seem like semantics, friends, but experientially, it it's makes not a big difference. We need, to, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus Christ. Amen. Mm -hmm. Um, Adam, did you have something? Oh, um, go ahead, Ty, or Ty, go ahead and then. Ladies first. Okay. <laughs> All right. Please. Okay. Um, I just, I think the main thing that's, that's coming out for me is it's about focus, like where your focus is. Um, where the focus becomes on me, which already means that I'm not developing the character of Christ because Christ is never self-focused. Um, so the focus becomes, I need to do this, I need to be holy, I need to da 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 Or if the focus is focusing on Jesus, and something that I noticed, it, it was the previous quote that um, Chester was commenting on first about when the character of God is perfectly repro reproduced in his people. Um, something I noticed in that quote, it's, not, it's talking about a corporate experience it's talking about the character of God perfectly reproduced in his people, in the church. Like when the church is manifesting this, the gospel goes out with power. The earth is lightened with the glory of God. So there's already um, an attitude that is inwardly focused to the exclusion of, oh, well, you know, the church is all messed up, but I'm going to be holy. We're already missing the point. God wants a people um, so in, in an, ex, I guess, experience, on the experience side, um, as I'm thinking, the, the moment we're thinking of this in an individualistic way, we've already missed the boat. God wants to, to build a people. Um, my, last, my last part of my comment is in Ephesians chapter 4, when God gives gifts to the church, some apostles, some prophets, when he gives gifts to the church is for the perfecting of the saints. He wants to perfect a people until they come to the full measure of the stature of Christ. It's not just me, but God wants to give every individual a gift that contributes to the body of Christ becoming like Christ, if that makes sense. So I think um, the focus, like a focus on Christ, Jesus first, yourself last, others in between. Amen. I, I like that. Amen. I like that. Um, I'll I, I just nuance the language a little bit and see, see if, if you would be able to, to roll with this. I agree with everything that was said that God's character is going to be vindicated. Um, are we comfortable saying that God's character has been, in totality, completely vindicated in the person of Christ, in the Christ event, in his life, death, 
resurrection, etc., and that human beings are not generating any new light, any new vindication, not generating anything that hasn't been achieved in him, but rather that we as God's church, he's the head, we're the body, and he is working through his church, as, as you were indicating, it, it's God who's doing it, um, but, but there's not any, anything new being brought to the table that we as a people, that, that, that human beings, will achieve in order to bring about a level of vindication that isn't completely achieved in Christ. So I would say this, I, I, I believe that, uh, that Christ was a full and complete manifestation of the character of the Father. And uh, I believe that um, the cross of Christ, um, as you, I think, stated, gave a complete uh, manifestation of his character of love. Um, the way I would understand the passage that we're, we're, we saw on the screen here, it's not, that, it's not that we add something new. It's that we add, there's, there's no new knowledge about God that we bring to the table. There's no new characteristic of God or attributes of God that we bring to the table. But this is the way I've always thought about these. In my mind, it could be said that, well, of course, God in Christ could obey his law. Mm -hmm. But when God does that through fallen human beings, it gives no new information, but it gives a, a new a new level of credibility Amen. to his argument, which he's already made fully in Christ. Yeah. That's how I understand. Love it. Absolutely love it. So, hey, so we need to have a panel like this every single year, and you guys are going to be invited. Um, yes, go ahead. Going, and, going a step yes. further, then, okay. on, on, on that, the Christ Object Lesson 69 quotation. Sure. There's, there's, a, there's a context in the quotation that's building up to the part when the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. Yes. And the context, the language that is used in that context is, is very helpful and fascinating to make the issue clear. This, these are her words, not mine. Leading up to that quotation, she says, the Christian in the world is as the representative of Christ. She then says that we are to forget ourselves that we are to help others, we are to talk of the love of Christ and tell of his goodness, we are to seek to save the lost, we are to manifest the spirit of unselfish love, your faith will increase, your convictions will deepen, your love will be made perfect. Christ is waiting with longing heart for the manifestation of himself. So it's a relational concept, and this fits perfectly with the biblical definition of perfection. When we read about perfection in the Sermon on the Mount, the, the verse that comes to most people's minds when we talk about perfection is Matthew 5, 48. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. The verses preceding are talking about forgiving enemies and going the extra mile and turning the cheek when abused and giving to those who ask of you and manifesting forgiveness under abuse. Mm -hmm. The Father makes the Son to shine on the righteous and the wicked. He's good to all, indiscriminately, is mm -hmm. the idea. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Jesus is talking 
about the way we relate and the way we treat people. So that shouldn't surprise us when we come to the Luke version mm -hmm. of the same text. In Luke chapter 6, it says, Be ye therefore merciful, as your Father in heaven is merciful. Amen. So the, the focus is on the way we relate to one another, the way we treat people. And primarily it has to do with relating with mercy and compassion and forgiveness. That's the concept she's dealing with in her context. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I just want to, I have the quote up again, you know, when the character of Christ will be perfectly reproduced, then he will come to claim them as his own. It goes on further and ends, where all who were professing his name bearing fruit to his glory, how quickly the world would be sown with the seed of the gospel. So it has to do with uh, a manifestation of the attributes of Jesus that the world sees that, that's the impetus that takes the gospel to the world. And so we, we do need to move forward. Um, and we, we still have more to cover here. So I want to go ahead with this challenging quote, and I like to ask difficult questions. Um, in the writings of Ellen White in scripture, perfection has special eschatological relevance to the final generation. Many have struggled, and I'm sure many in this audience have struggled with this following passage. Quote, those who are living upon the earth when the intercession of Christ shall cease in the sanctuary above or to stand in the sight of a holy God without a mediator. Their robes must be spotless. Their characters must be purified from sin by the blood of sprinkling. Through the grace of God and their own diligent effort, they must be conquerors in the battle with evil. While the investigative judgment is going forward in heaven, while the sins of the penitent uh, believers are being removed from the sanctuary, there is to be a special work of purification, of putting away of sin among God's people upon the earth. Now, Ty, I'm sure you wrestle with this. What does it mean that some people will live in the sight of a holy God without a mediator, and what gets them through that experience? Because that sounds awfully scary. Well, first of all, the, the statement means exactly what it says. Um, that is to start with. Yeah. In, in the broader context of that statement and the writings of inspiration, what it doesn't mean is that suddenly a transition occurs in human history where now human beings step in to a position before God in which they are presenting their own achieved righteousness for acceptance or for salvation. That's what it doesn't mean, in my understanding. What it does mean is that human beings have partaken fully of the righteousness of Christ and are standing before God, as the book of Hebrews indicates, with a clean conscience. Before God, at rest, at peace, in Christ and utter and complete dependence on him for safe passage through the judgment. Does anyone want to add to that? Oh, no. Can yes. I add? It's, it's, Siku, please. Um, I think I was thinking about the quote, completely agreeing with that it's through Christ's strength. Um, in the quote, it said, through the grace of God and their own diligent effort, they must be conquerors in the battle with evil. I think a lot of discomfort comes from the, the part of it where it says through their own diligent effort. And then, the, uh, I was going to say the enfoque, the, the focus becomes on their own diligent effort, 
right? Um, through the grace of God and their own diligent effort. Um, but the text that comes to mind for me is Philippians chapter 2, that the Bible says that work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And it means exactly what it says. You work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But then it says, because it is God who is working in you mm -hmm. to will and to do of his good pleasure. So the, the picture, and I think it goes back to what Ty was talking about in the beginning of the, the importance of human free will and our ability to choose, that we have a part to play in our salvation. It's not a meritorious part to play, but it's a part that God has given to us that you need to make a choice. Your choice will not help you because you have no power to carry it out. The things you want to do, you can't do. The things you don't want to do, those are the things you do. But you still need to choose that you don't want to do those things. And then the power of God combined with me surrendering my will to God, God, I want my will to be on your side, then God comes and he gives power to the decision that I've made. And he's like, here, and this, so this combination, this working together of, um, of my choice to follow God, and then God comes and he gives power to those choices, that's, I think that's the, um, and, and that's the part that won't change, like whether now or towards the end of time, what, what does change is that I'm going to now be consistently choosing him, as opposed to before I'm choosing him, I'm not, I'm choosing him, I'm not. And you see that in Abraham's journey through his spiritual experience, you know, he's got ups, he's got downs, but he came to a point in his relationship with God, God's like, you know, you sacrifice your only son. And he came to the place, he's like, you know what? I'm gonna sacrifice this thing that God has given to me, even if it doesn't seem to make sense to me. Um, and you put your will on the side of Christ and then God comes in here and he empowers that. And I think that's the, the qualitative, I guess, experience of um, God's people. Adam, did you add something? Just real quick, I mean, yes, please. Almost, I think we have to be careful when we look at it, this and the others, that we don't pick and choose those passages we, you know, we, we take and read and, and use and which ones we don't. The passage is there, it's clear in what it says, and therefore we have to come to an understanding from it, but not just isolated on the passage. We look at it in the context of everything else it says. Yes. And the passage does say that, that or alludes to that there'll come a time when Christ is not interceding for his people. Mm -hmm. Now, we now, when you look at the Bible, we know that that will take place prior to his return. But does that mean that then I'm now in that gap of history relying on myself? Of course not. Like, is Christ still there for his people? He still is there for his people. You know, he says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. So there's, there's a change of role. But then also the, the other, and when I, when I study this, it always kind of baffles me how that the time of Jacob's trouble, what God's people will be going through, they're going to be going on to, a, in a sense, a now, as Chester was used to, what he like, you know, I'm, you know, I'm close to Christ, but in a sense, because the closer we get to Christ, when we look at ourselves, we see nothing, because there is nothing to see, you know, but while God's people are, are going through that stage, I would always think, you know, well, you know, if, if the plagues have started falling and I haven't got any plagues, then hey, you know, you can sit back and put my feet up and waiting for the second coming because I didn't get any boils and you know I'm still alive and everything's good and I know that in my head but then I want to read the experience of what people going through it that, that it, it's a completely different experience yeah where there's, there's this constant um, submission and surrender to God yeah and a doubting of my own of myself and, and who I am amen let's go ahead and move forward we have 
A few more questions here. Siku, the notion of perfection is a biblical concept. It's found in the writings of Ellen White and in scripture. Perhaps the issue surrounding perfection is that we've defined perfection incorrectly, uh, that we've equated perfection to rigid lifestyles uh, and diets, uh, the absence of laughter, uh, wearing suspenders. By the way, if you're wearing suspenders, uh, I, I, I'm just, yeah, I'm not, no offense. Uh, growing beards. Uh, and by the way, having a beard is in style now, so uh, growing beards and wearing homemade dresses. <laughs> I wish I could wear my, make my own clothes. So with that said, right, I'm just kind of providing a, a broad caricature to make a point. With that said, how are we to define perfection? How can we pre uh, present perfection in a way that doesn't lead to legalism and a works-orientated religion? Okay. Um, I'll, I'll try to do both, both of the questions. I think the first, the first part of how we understand perfection to be, um, what perfection is, I think in scripture, the picture that's painted about perfection is that it's about wholeness. Um, and I have to refer back to, to the whole, the Armenian versus Calvinistic type um, paradigm. There's this picture of, uh, of dynamism, of growth, um, versus a static idea. Um, so there's one way to look at perfection where it's like, you know, this is, this is perfection and I must be this. And there's another way to look at perfection, which I think is, you know, the picture that you see when Ellen White talks about the seed that is planted in the ground. Um, and then she says that it grows and at every stage, no, she doesn't say, Jesus said, <laughs> Jesus said it grows. And then at every stage of its growth, it's perfect at every stage of that growth. And so... You, you can't be, you can't, um, I'm expecting, right? I'm expecting a baby. You can't tell because of the table. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking when, 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 when our son is two months old, I probably shouldn't get mad at him if he's not walking, right? Like, this is what I've been told by other moms. <laughs> you, know, so, um, you know, because a perfect two-month-old is different from a perfect five-year-old. Right? And, and the expectation of, that you have of that individual at every level of growth. So I guess to say the, the words that I've seen that are used for perfection, at least in the New Testament, it's got this concept of growth, of coming to completeness. And if God himself is not static, like God is impacted by his reality, then why would even our idea of what it means to be perfect be static? Like we want to become like God in character, which means that it's a growing experience that we have. Jesus Christ himself, when he was on earth, he said he was perfected through the things that he suffered, right? Does that mean that Jesus was imperfect when he was 15 and then he became perfect at 30? Like at every stage, you're perfect for, uh, it's a, what, how did it? Does this make any sense what I'm saying? Totally. We got you. Okay. And, and then I think the, the, the second part was um, the works-oriented religion thing. I think that focus on what I, I need to do this, I need to be walking. Even though I'm two months old, I need to be walking right now, you know? And then, like, my focus is so much on I need to be walking in order to be a perfect human being, perfect human beings walk. 
and the, it's already, I'm already off because it's not even about the walking, right? It's about your character. So what needs to be happening at every stage in my experience is I need to be focusing on Jesus. I need to be becoming more like Christ. I need, I need Jesus. I need more of Jesus. Mm-hmm. I need much more of Jesus. And at every stage, whether I'm just, I'm just learning about dietary laws or I've grown up in the church and I've known the dietary laws and I'm trying to figure out nature of Christ and whatever, <laughs> I don't know. what. At every stage, whatever growth experience I'm going in, at every moment in my journey with God, my focus is on Christ and becoming like Christ as opposed to I need to do this in order to be a perfect person. Does that make sense? Yeah. It does, yes. And, and I want to go to the next question because it, it's related to the issue of sanctification. And I want to read a quote by uh, A.T. Jones in Lessons on Faith. And I've taught for many years. I taught at Weimar. And this was a common misconception amongst conscientious, spirit-prophet-believing, Bible-believing Seventh-day Adventists. And I'm going to frame it in this way. So this book states... A.T. Jones states, faith is expecting the word of God to do what the word says and depending upon that word to do what the word says. Since the word of God is in itself creative and so is able to produce and cause to appear what otherwise would never exist nor be seen, it is plain enough that faith is the evidence of things not seen. goes on to say, when God speaks, the thing is simply because he has spoken. Justification by faith, then, is justification by depending upon the word of God only and expecting that word only to accomplish it. The word of God is self-fulfilling, for in creating all things, he spoke, and it was. That's a powerful quote, and I would believe, and I I believe that. Now, when God speaks, the thing is, just to summarize, God's word speaks into existence what's not. This is also a reiteration of Hebrews chapter 11. We can depend and trust upon that word. Now, I believe that there's potential danger in applying this concept to sanctification. I'm going to open myself up to the panel to butcher me. All right, so this is the assumption that because God's power is unlimited, One can achieve ultimate, completed perfection in a moment. Because what God did with creation, he can do with your sanctification. Right? That's an easy uh, assumption and and application you can take with uh, those words of A.T. Jones. Now, this is the implication. This could inevitably lead one to gauge their acceptance with God based on one's performance, If you're not absolutely perfect in your life, well, something's wrong with your faith. You're doubting God's creative power. Thus, the result is repeated failures in one's life inevitably leads towards guilt and feelings of God's displeasure. This ultimately can lead one from God and not towards him. Now, I believe this nuanced understanding of sanctification is dangerous and theologically unsupported from Scripture and the spirit of prophecy, I'd like to discuss this issue, this question regarding the extent to which we should apply the instantaneous creative power of God's word to sanctification. Regarding sanctification, I believe that God's creative power is utilized and applied. I do affirm that, but it's limited in its scope. 
You cannot achieve completed ultimate sanctification in a day. And I'm going to give you several reasons, and then I'm going to open it up. Number one, God respects the freedom of will, the underlying basis of love. Number two, God does not possess or brainwash you into a state of perfection. Number three, he will not perfect you in areas you're not aware of. In other words, conversion doesn't bring you to a state of omniscience and take you uh, to the next point. He will not perfect you above and beyond that which you yourself consent to intelligently. So this is the conclusion. God's sanctifying power, though transformative with creative power, is at the same time limited by God's respect of our freedom of will, and number two, the finitude or limitations of humanity. So opening myself up, would you agree with that? And is there anything else to expound on what I've just shared? I would agree with it. I, I, think, that, I think that you've accurately described the difference between the immediate reality of justification versus the, the ongoing developmental nature of sanctification. And I think that in both instances, the power at work is the creative, redemptive power of God. Yeah. Creative power in the form of grace is being applied to, to develop us through the sanctification process. Um, but sanctification, perfection, is not instantaneous. It's a growth process. So. I say amen to how you described it. Yes, Chester. Yeah, I would agree with that, and I would, um, I would, I would, I'd make two just sort of highlights of what you shared. Number one, the the limiting factor in sanctification is not God's power, yeah. but it's us. It's our uh, ability to understand and consent, as you said, because He respects our freedom. Number, number two, I I think that I think that. When you when you uh, when you look back at just the ideological truths that had to be discovered rediscovered after the Dark Ages, you know, from from the time of Luther, fifteen seventeen, all the way till you know the discovery of the Sabbath and the sanctuary, the state of the dead, and some of the other things that our own movement was a part of, of bringing back to the forefront. Three hundred and some years it took. It wasn't because the truth wasn't there. It was because we as human beings are slow to learn. And um, what God is wanting to do, I mean, it, it's remarkable what he does in the final generation. Because we have to not, it's not just about understanding truths now, it's about understanding about ourselves. Like what God needs, he needs us to know himself better, he needs us to know ourselves better. And, um, and when we... If we could just learn those two things faster, we could do the work of sanctification faster. Amen. <laughs> we, we, yes. I want, I want to comment to that. Um, I, I was uh, impacted by reading that book in that specific way, in my experience, because I read it and I thought, oh, well, all, the, all I have to do then is just read the Bible every morning, and then I'm going to be a different person by the end of the day. And then I'll fall, and I'll get discouraged. And I'm coming to God, I'm like, but God, I used the magic formula. I read the Bible. You know, why isn't something happening in my life? Because yeah. I, I thought that's how I read it. And I, I conflate, I, um, how, is conflated the right word? Yes. Okay. I got mommy brain. Okay. I put, I put them together, right? The justification, sanctification. Um, I think something that became helpful to me as I 
came out of that experience was that thinking about even the way that God creates. God created the world in six days. He didn't have to, but he chose to create the world in six days. God is powerful enough. He could have, bam, you know, the world one day, everything that exists, exists. But God decided, and I'm not God, so I can't get into his head why he chose to do it that way. Mm -hmm. But we can learn something from even if we're taking it from creation and how his creative power works. He chose to take day one, create something, day two, create something, day three, and he chose to do it in a process. It didn't mean that his power was, lim was, was less because he created one thing in one day. He said, let there be light. Whew, that's all my power can handle for today. You know? <laughs> that wasn't it, right? Because yeah. God's power is limitless. Mm -hmm. And yet, in the way that God chose to create our world, the way that Genesis 1 and 2 describes it, it took, he took a process. And in the way that he chooses to recreate us, there is that instantaneous, there is that power that is instantaneous. Once you're justified, you're perfect in God's eyes, like you'd never sinned, just as if I'd never sinned, right? And yet, when it comes to our sanctification, he chooses, and I think it's related to our free will and, and these aspects we've discussed, but it's not inconsistent with his creative power to say that God chooses to do it in a process in our lives, because he's done that before. Amen. Amen. Uh, we're going to... Um Let's see here. All right, so this next question. The fact is, there are many spirit of prophecy quotes and biblical texts that support many facets of final generation theology. And we don't have a lot of time, so we'll just discuss these final points. Um, uh, and if you could summarize them. Not everything is controversial. Perhaps the issue lies not so much with the fundamental propositions but rather in terms of an imbalance of emphasis on certain truths at the expense of others. I think, Ty, you've already kind of touched upon that already with the eyebrow imagery, and I don't think, I don't know if we need to add anything more to that, and so let's go ahead and, and, and move on. And this is the final uh, subject that I wanna really open up to this audience, and that is an appeal to unity and open, courteous, dialogue. I know, for example, there are some, uh, some proponents of, and, and, and um, uh, those who support GYC may, may not want some of us here on this panel. And, and I believe, and I, and I disagree with that, I believe that, that we need to have open discussion. I believe that we need to come together and, 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 and share with, what, with one another what we believe, because there's a lot of misconceptions out there. I know, and I'll just share, Ty, you and I, I came to you a couple GYCs ago, and I said, hey, there's some things that I've heard about you that, that I, I just don't know, and you're a good dude, you're a good guy. And, and, and I, I, was, I was really happy that we had that conversation. It really opened my eyes to a lot of, uh, 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 or at least it clarified many things, many misconceptions that I had. Now. Um, and, and I want to segue into this quote here from, from, from you. And I think you hit okay. it right on the nail. Yes, it's, it's entitled conservative or liberal. You remember writing that? I probably did, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it says this. It doesn't matter how different conservatives and liberals appear to be on the surface because they tend to have one defining characteristic in common. Use a strong word there. They hate each other. 
Uh, they hate each other or, and then you do qualify. So at least they dislike, discredit, disavow, and politically dismember one another. Well, that's maybe not a qualification. Um, now, on both sides, there is pride of opinion, and I think we would all agree with that. There's an arrogance of attitude and most glaringly, a spirit of censor against the other side. So the differences are only skin deep, while at heart they are moved by one and the same spirit, the spirit of self-serving enmity that crucified Jesus. There's no virtue in being a conservative and there's no virtue in being a liberal. The only virtue at all is in Christ and our only real safety is to live his love towards those with whom we find ourselves at odds, especially towards those with whom we find ourselves at odds. I really appreciate that quote, by the way. So final question, is unity, or at the very least, open, respectful dialogue in regards to debated theological topics too much to ask? If Ellen White were alive today, what would be her counsel? And what are some practical ways to augment or increase unity and open dialogue within a church that at this time in Earth's history needs unity more than anything else? And I, I just wanna say, Ellen White says, press together, press together, for in unity there is strength. I wanna open it up to you as we conclude. I think we do, and this is not for us in the sense to discuss here, but I think we're all aware that, you know, that as a church we have to watch for, as you say, teachings that completely discredit what we believe, whether it comes from without or within. And that's something that we, we always have to be aware of and yeah. vigilant over. So we can't, unity is not just, oh, let's just, let's just all love each other, you know, and Absolutely. not talk about what we disagree on and just focus on the level that we do. Chester. If you missed yesterday's seminar, you should go back and listen to the recording. Adam shared a paradigm of, of, of different categories of, of, of ideas that we have. We have doctrine, we have uh, teaching, we have majority-minority opinions, and we have personal opinions. And one of the problems, even going up to 1888, as, as Adam was mentioning, one of the problems was there were people who had, had, had opinions or maybe even teachings, but they were elevating to the point of doctrine. And they were demanding that everyone would see things the same way. The law and relations happened to be the issue that, that uh, they, were, they thought was a landmark. 
And this is one of the problems in conservative Adventism. We sometimes create litmus tests that are really not landmarks. So we, we create them, we move them up to doctrine, we, we try to use them as a test to see whether this person is a, is a real Adventist or not. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things that would help immensely, um, besides just that spirit of humility, is if we could have, have the ability to listen to each other, listen to the world church, and not try to run ahead and create landmarks or litmus tests that uh, the brethren don't don't see the light in. Amen. Can I just correct you, Chester? Please. <laughs> I wouldn't say it's a problem of conservative Adventism to have litmus tests. I'd say it's a problem of Adventism as a whole. Christianity. Mm. <laughs> reverse that statement. I can live for Adventism just as much litmus test as conservatives. Mm -hmm. They just give a litmus test. And, you know, across mm -hmm. the spectrum, you can see it everywhere. Yeah. And, you know, something we have to grapple with. Absolutely. Yes. I just wanted to, um, to share the text in Ephesians chapter 4. I, I referenced it before. Um, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul writes, he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love. And that word forbearing means it's going to be hard. Endeavoring, that means trying hard, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And he goes on and then he says, but to every one of us, grace is given according to the measure of the gift of Christ. And he, said, he ascended up high and he gave gifts to his church, some apostles, so he gives spiritual gifts to his church, until we all come to the unity of faith. And this picture that emerges in Ephesians 4 is there's unity for the purpose of unity. He's saying, be united. There's gonna, it's going to be hard. You're going to have disagreements. You don't see eye to eye. But God has given us as a church spiritual gifts He's brought us together as a church so that we can together come to grow into Christ. And so if, we're, if, it's, if we get so um, stuck in our heads that I have the right idea and you're wrong and so therefore we cannot have fellowship, we actually won't accomplish what God is trying to do in us as a people. Um, this statement from Ellen White, I think, answers the question that you were asking, how would, how would Ellen White counsel us in the, the current situation in Seventh-day Seventh Adventist Church. This is helpful for me. She says, the church is the theater of God's grace in which he delights to effect transformations upon them with astonishment, excuse me, upon which he delights to effect transformations so wonderful that the angels look upon them with astonishment and joy. Heaven is full of rejoicing when the members of the human family are seen to be so full of compassion for one another, loving one another as Christ has loved them. In another statement, she says, the grace of Christ must mold our entire being and its triumph will not be complete until the whole heavenly universe shall witness habitual tenderness of feeling, Christ-like love, and holy deeds in the deportment of the children of God. Amen. So from her standpoint, as the angels, as, as heaven looks on, um, they're looking for things that oftentimes we're not that concerned about. I mean, it's astounding to me that she's saying here that the angels are concerned with the way we feel toward one another. Habitual tenderness of feeling? What's that? 
I, I can easily assess uh, your diet, your dress, you know, your theological differences with, with one person or another. But, but as the whole heavenly universe looks on, they're looking for compassion in our treatment of one another uh, within the body of Christ. It's not helpful to the advancement of theological discussion for us to to censor and assess and package one another in theological boxes and, and say, you know, this person is off and that person has it right. There is a certain, there is a certain doctrinal orthodoxy within which we operate. And a Seventh-day Adventist believes certain things by definition. And then outside of the parameters of those doctrinal verities that we all agree on, there is room for discussion. There is room for growth and development in our understanding. Mm -hmm. And that requires us to exercise compassion toward one another to hear what we're saying to one another. Amen. We're going to have to go ahead and close. We're out of time. I just want to say that this uh, discussion has been a blessing to me. What I really appreciate about it is that Christ, how many of you heard Jesus uplifted uh, this afternoon. And, and I, I want that to be the, the, the takeaway. I think that's from all of us. And certainly let's strive for truth in love and in unity. Let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we certainly haven't resolved all the questions and all the issues that are confronting and facing the church today. But Lord, we pray that this will be a step in the right direction of open discourse and, 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 and talking to one another. And Lord, we also want to pray that it will also inspire us with, uh, with uh, increased um, motivation to study the Word of God and study the, the spirit of prophecy as we have never, ever done before and to dig into Scripture. And we thank you, Lord for this discussion. We thank you for being here with us, and we want to ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.